netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from fxguide.com. Hi, and welcome to the FX Podcast. I'm John Montgomery. Our guest this week is Chris Corbold. He's the special effects supervisor of No Time to Die, the recent Bond film. He won an Academy Award for Best Visual Effects for his work on Inception. And uh, as you'll hear in the podcast, he might discuss a bit. It's a bit of a family affair. He's a brother of special effects supervisors, Neil and Paul. And again, they, they talk a little bit about that. Before we cross that conversation, I just want to mention that over at our sister site, fxphd.com, we have our annual Black Friday slash Cyber Monday sale going on through Monday, November 29th. All FXPHD memberships are 30% off, including the annual memberships. Those you already get one month free, so those are especially a good deal. You can also save 30% on Kevin Shaw's Outstanding, an introduction to HDR course. Really, if you're, if you're curious at all uh, about HDR or working in HDR, I really recommend this course. It's got some great reviews that you can read at the site. Uh, in addition, Warren Eagle's Resolve Training is also 30% off. That's going on now through Monday, November 29th. Well, that's enough advertising for now. Let's go ahead and just dive into this conversation. Mike Seymour speaking with Chris Corbold. So Chris, thanks so much for talking to us. We really appreciate it. Pleasure, absolutely my pleasure. Hey, before we get started, uh, you're a kind of family of uh, special effects guys, right? Like uh, you have, uh, as they say, kin in the game. Yes, yeah, we, we, we do actually. It all started off with my uncle. He was um, he was a special effects guy in the early days and he went on to win uh, the Oscar for Superman, Superman the movie. And uh, he he got me a job on um, Tommy, the film that The Who made about their, their famous rock opera. And then I after that film, I you know, left school and went, uh, I got a job with a a special effects company in Pinewood. And then, you know, my brothers followed on and it all went from there. And now, you know, they're all supervisors in their own right. So, yeah, it's a little bit of a dynasty, really. And, uh, yeah, because, you know, you're, you're, um, you've done quite a few films. Let's not deny it. And, and the trouble is that they don't make logical sense to me because you'd have had to have started when you were one because... <laughs> Because I was looking at your uh, credit list, and uh, just in terms of the Bond films alone, um, you mentioned Tommy, which I think is just a brilliant film, and I, I, I adored that. But like, I was watching your films. Uh, I mean, Spy Who Loved Me, etc. Now you weren't credited on that, but like you were listed as an assistant on that. How old were you when you started on your Bond films? I think I was about eighteen or nineteen, something like that. Wow, yeah. that is just uh, incredible. And so at that stage, what were you doing at, uh, as an assistant at, uh, at that age? I, I was working for the special effects company at that stage, and um, we were tasked with building certain props. And then uh, towards the end of the film, I went up onto the stage uh, when they were blowing up the 007 stage for the big submarine sequence. But funny, there's an interesting thing there. that Recently, I went out to, there's a, an exhibition out the, at the top of a mountain in Solden in Austria, where we filmed on Spectre, I think. And um, I went out there to uh, open it. And I got uh, a, a pre sort of opening walk around with the, the guy that um, built it. And 
We, there was one part where we went into where you, there was like a, a button in front of you and you press the button and the display cabinet lit up behind with a certain prop. It would be a, an Amiga watch, something else, a Walther PBK. And the third one that I pressed the button on was the, the ski pole that turned into a gun on Spolo Love Me that I made like 45 years earlier. It was wow. uh, it was quite emotional, actually. Um, that was one of the first jobs I did on the Bond. I was working with a um, very, very talented engineer at the time, and I was his apprentice. And he would build the first one, and then he would say, right, you replicate this piece and this piece and this piece. So we built two side by side. So it was it was very emotional when I saw that in that uh, cabinet. Yeah. I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but you've done, like, what, 15 Bond films? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've been watching your work my my entire adult life, and uh, <laughs> yeah, it makes me feel really old. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry about that. Um, but but it's remarkable how iconic. Like you, you talk about that shot. I can see it as if it was yesterday. I remember mm-hmm. as a kid just thinking, like I literally almost stood out of my seat uh, at the end of that uh, ski sequence. It was mm-hmm. uh, a lot of these um, shots and a lot of these sequences are so iconic. And uh, and to have worked on so many films, I just thought we'd take a, a beat just to ask you, how much has that changed for you in terms of like the the process of making a Bond film? I mean, obviously you've got a much more senior role now and you're doing a, a different job, but like is a, is a Bond film a, a similar kind of enterprise to join as a production company these days or is it like vastly different than it was uh, over the years uh, getting to this point today? I think that the, the bonds have always been very, very unique within the film industry. You know, obviously Cubby and Harry Salzman started the whole process and then, you know, Cubby ran with it after that. And then Barbara Broccoli and Michael Wilson ran with it, you know, sadly after Cubby died. So, but it's always been, it's always been a family run production. You know, you're, 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 you almost treat it as family, but, what they do is, you know, they've always based their films in reality and they've always given me the resources and the confidence and encouragement to show off my craft. And, you know, some of them have been really wild and wacky ideas that I came up with uh, and, they've, and they've embraced it and said, look, run with it, Chris, yeah, run with it, and given me the resources to do it. You know, the, the tank chasing Goldeneye, the tube train crashing through the ceiling in Skyfall, you know, the, uh, the sinking house in Casino Royale, you know, I've, I've, I've pitched these ideas and they, they've given me the scope to be able to, you know, me and my crew to, to show off what our craft and what we can do. Yeah, of course, you're second unit directing now um, and doing a lot of uh, very senior work. But I wanted to ask you one particular aspect about the Bond films relating to that, which is um, because the Bond films are so iconic and so marvellous, there, there was a period, I guess, there where it felt a little bit like, and this is before you were uh, second unit director, where uh, we went into an action sequence and we came out of an action sequence. In other words, it was a contained uh, piece. But mm-hmm. I've got to say, especially on this last film, what I found so remarkable is how well it didn't feel like we've now gone into action sequence or car chase. When the car chase is over, we'll get back to the plot kind of thing, right? And yeah. in the middle of the, that 15-year uh, run, I did feel a bit like it was always good. It was I always went and I always enjoyed it. But mm. there was much more of a narrative flow now that didn't seem to 
to deviate to action and come back to plot. And I was wondering how, whether you'd agree with that and also whether or not that's something that's been easy to do because we do want spectacle and we do want action, but mm. we don't want them to seem like they're, they're, they're beats that are separate from the main plot. Mm. That's an interesting question. And there are several parts to that question. Um, the first part is that I'm not a great advocate of gratuitous special effects just for the sake of a special effects spectacle. It might seem like I am, but I'm not. It, to me, it has to be, it's really important that it has to be dovetailed into the storyline, the characters. And, you know, it, it's a complete package. It's not me holding up a big banner saying, look, this is the greatest special effect ever. The thing about No Time to Die, it, we went to an emotional place in No Time to Die that I've never been to on any bond that I've worked on. You know, you were dealing with really serious emotions. You know, obviously Daniel's final film, you know, you're dealing with the demise of Felix Leiter. You're dealing with the child. And, you know, it's, it's the first and only time that I have ever you know, shed a tear in a bomb film, not only once, but twice. I saw it twice. And th that's a person that knew the script and knew what was happening and still got emotionally touched yeah. by it. So, no, I, I totally agree with you. I think that, um, you know, the, the DV5 chase, it was a car chase, but it wasn't, it was short, sharp, to the point, gritty, and it, it didn't get to the stage where you're thinking, oh, God, I wish this car chase is in. When are they going to stop doing somersaults? When are they going to stop doing this? It was it was a short car chase and and fitted in exactly with the storyline. You know that was a big moment and one of the most poignant moments for me was when they were sitting in the car. Absolutely. Know, and bond, the bullets were coming yep. in and there was no sound. It was like and the tension in that I felt was really powerful. Yeah, I was going to say it was like betrayal and uh, and you know confidence and just like so many things overlaid on top. As any good film is, there was like the action and there was this terrific subtext. And mm. uh, but it's interesting job because if you are second unit, you you have you know obviously by inherently in the in the name a second separate unit from main unit. Um, it's not. I think some people might think that's just an easy job, but it's not easy to not only deliver, but deliver in a way that's a consistent um, narrative story, a voice to the first unit, because you can't just go off and do whatever you want, right? You have to fit in with the uh, with the main unit in I mean, all I respects. I wasn't second unit director. No, no, no I understand that. I'm just discussing okay. that notion of second unit. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. I, I, absolutely. I mean, there are a lot of. Um, there are a lot of opinions of what a second unit is. And um, I, I, all I can tell you what my opinion is, and I learned a lot from Chris Nolan when I was working for him. Um, you know, it, it's to me, it's a, it's a group of people. And as a second unit director, I am there to enhance the vision of the first unit director. It's his or her film. And I am there to um, carry out their vision to, add to their film. You know, there, there, I, there's a tendency for some second unit directors to go and make their own film. Well, that's not my, that, you know, I am there in service to the main unit director, whoever it may be. Um, another mandate that I do have I, I, is that I want people to come to work with a smile on their face and go home with a smile on their face. To me, it's very important. I've done many second units over the years where it's been a miserable experience uh, from egos and whatever and, 
people shout at other people, you know. So that's something I've learned. I want everybody to enjoy themselves and but turn out good work, you know. And I think you get so much more out of people when they're enjoying themselves and they respect their environment they're in than them coming to work not wanting to be there. So, Chris, I was wondering if I could stretch this to, because the reason I was asking this is I think that there's a similar kind of relationship now between visual effects and special effects in the sense that some people would characterize that as like some kind of competition, but certainly talking to your colleagues on this film, it was very much an enhancing the work, like taking and building on the craft of one with the other. So in the case of special effects and visual effects, like, you know, there are things that are clearly done better in one than the other, but there's... For, for talking to your colleagues, it doesn't sound like there was a sense of competition so much as it was, as I say, the craft building on each other and being in sync with each other in much the same way you were just discussing. I don't know if you'd agree with that. No, I, 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 I totally agree with it. I mean, Charlie Charlie Noble and all the visual effects team, and there were, there were hundreds of them, and you now bearing in mind that a normal, re- reasonably sized visual effects, special effects film, they had, you know, 12 months to do the the post-production and Charlie and all those guys have barely four months. Um, the, the pressure is really on them, but you know, they, they, yeah, yes, bonds are based in reality, but I have to say Charlie and all those visual effects guys made us look good. The, the, the special effects guys look good. The stunt people look good because what they were doing was invi- in, invisible visual effects. You know, it wasn't in your face. It's, it's, you know, unfortunately, it's not going to win any awards because it's invisible. <laughs> uh, you know, it's like we we had a DB5 with a, a, a driving pod on the top with a three times British rally champion driving it with Daniel and, and Leia inside screeching around corners. And you can see the body movements. They're not, it's very different when you see that when there is actually movement going on rather than have them against a green screen or a back projection. And, you know, in that instance, you know, Charlie is painting out our driving pod on the top. So all you're seeing is, you know, Daniel and Leia reacting to all this car chase. So, you know, he did, you know, Charlie, I, I, I think us and special effects and stunts, I owe a lot to the visual effects department. And, yes, it's a great marriage, and um, especially on this film. It, it works an absolute treat. Yeah, I was actually going to go to the Salisbury Plains explosion as the example, but um, but that's a great one. But I, we were talking to Charlie about that, and he was saying, you know, like clearly you you, you guys uh, did some of the greatest uh, explosion work um, that fed into what was going on. But then again, they were trying to also craft explosions to look like they were coming out of silos, something mm-hmm. you you know you couldn't build uh, giant holes in Salisbury Plain to to build. But it was it. It was a classic case that that looked incredibly much like it was in camera, thanks to your work, and obviously needed to be crafted to look like it was coming out of the inside of silos for another. That's a, I don't know if you could talk about that, but that's like an interesting uh, uh, problem in almost fluid dynamics as much as it is anything else. Yeah, I mean, we did, Charlie and I had lots of discussion about the explosions, you know, and I said, like, you know, you know, this is a big deal to take a whole crew down there and shoot these explosions. You know, are you sure that, you know, this is going to be something you can use, you can, you know, make it into the film? And he said, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we, together, we plotted out the, the you know, the, the distances the explosions were away and, you know, the, the timing between the explosions. 
And it was um, we worked very closely together over that. And you know, there were parts of it that they that of the explosions they used. There were parts of it they used for reference, and and uh, they slotted it in, and they added parts to make it work for the shot. So. No, it's. Uh, I enjoyed very much working with Charlie. It was a, a real collaborative effort. Um, you know, as with the whole visual effects department, I, I can't sing their praises either. If I could just um, take a deviation for a second, I want to talk to you about the character of flames and the character of explosions. I think that um, for certainly people that are coming from a digital world, like you know. They think of explosions as being exactly what they sort of see on screen, these big sort of fireballs, et cetera, et cetera. But in my, um, you know, I've had some luck to, to work with some great special effects people myself, and they, there's a real difference in the, um, in the fuels and the look of them and, like, the way that they work. And I was just wondering if you could talk about that for a second. Like, for example, when you had the Salisbury Plains explosions, what, what uh, fuel did you go for and why? And and what is the character of the flames that you're looking for from those? Because they're quite different, aren't they? Depending whether it's, you know, propane versus, you know, uh, well, different types of explosion. Well, I think, you know, it, it's very easy to do a, a massive fuel explosion like we did on um, Spectre, you know, out in the desert there. But this was a very different a different explosion. This was a, a high explosive rocket coming in, blowing up in the depths. So I felt that it wouldn't wouldn't be a flame explosion. It would be sheer detonation uh, and coming up through the ground and taking a lot of the ground up with it. So that's that's what we were striving to achieve. It, it was it was more dirt and rubble from below blasting up through the ground. Now, we did lots and lots of tests, and it's, just, it's a weird thing, explosions. And it's there are some explosions that I have probably tested 30 or 40 times. And you look at it, and you analyze it, and we all talk about it. No, it's not quite right. Do that slightly different. Do that slightly different. Do that slightly different. Then all of a sudden, you get it. And as soon as you get it, you know instantly. It's a weird thing. You know, and, and a lot of it's a, it's a personal thing for me. I mean, I probably could have showed any of the 30 tests to the director and he would have been happy. But, you know, after a, quite a, after a few years, you, you get an eye and a, a notion in your own head what you think it should look like. It's not just the colour of them either. It's like uh, like the like there's a sort of a volume, there's a ratio to the, to the sort of soot or the blackness of it. Um, as you say, you can pack them so they sort of shooting up uh, cork or whatever. Um, yeah. And even just rigging them is, I think, much more complicated than most people understand. So uh, a car blowing up, right? You actually have to vaporize petrol before it ignites. So it's not just a matter of like, putting a charge in a drum of petrol and it goes off. Can you explain that process? Like it's quite a physical problem to solve that vaporization. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the, this the, the, the systems uh, have evolved over many, 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 many years. You know, it's not something we've, we're, re we're not reinventing the wheel. It's been around for a long time. But again, you have to, you know, it's all down to testing. You know, even though I've probably blown up 150 cars, if I know I've got to blow up a car in a film, I will still get an old Jeremy car in and we will do 10 tests. Right. To, like, to get different shapes, you know. Sometimes you you would um, 
rigged the doors to blow off with sand mortars, you know, with restraining cables on them, rigged the bonnets to blow off. You might flip the car end over end or side over side to coincide with the explosion you're putting in there. So it's all a matter of, I mean, what you're striving, striving to achieve is something slightly different to what people have seen before. I mean, one of, one of my, strangely enough, one of my favourite explosions is one we did in the film called Rhythm Section, which was a film Barbara Broccoli produced uh, with Blake Lively, which really didn't make any money at all. But it was, there was an explosion of a bus blowing up in that. And it was the only explosion really in the film. So we had time to actually work hard on it and and, and experiment with it. Uh, and and we, we got it absolutely right. I was so proud of it. Um, you know, on big action films, you're doing explosions day in, day out. You're really just getting through it to meet a schedule. But when you've got that time to explore it and manipulate it and, and improve it, it, it's really a, a lovely feeling. So you're working with things like napalm, uh, like with uh, cord, with like, uh, you, you know, petrol fuel, um, propane, like tons of stuff, right? I'm just wondering mm -hmm. if you could talk to the process in terms of uh, how now you work with previs and then also safety, because clearly this is incredibly dangerous. And and as much as we like the the stunts and stuff, like, you know, safety comes first and and mm -hmm. they must be related, of course, the previs and the, and the safety considerations. but rigging and stuff you know, strange enough you, you don't often do previous for explosions oh, really um, no no it's it, no you know, we never did a previous for the big explosion inspector we never did a previous for this explosion in uh, no time to so die it's just experience that that uh like on a specter explosion like how it's going to go and where it's going to go you're not like simulating any of that or looking at any of that no, I mean the, the the spectre explosion was was the way that came about was that we knew we had to blow up the baddies' lair and the the visual effects guys were putting forward you know these concepts and previses of you know the, an explosion the ground all caving in showing all the underground caverns of the baddies' lair and Sam Mendes wasn't wasn't buying it he said look this is not bond this doesn't this is not working for me. And I literally said to him, look, Sam, I think, you know, we're out in the desert. I, I've, I've seen the, the shape of the whole complex. I think I can do an explosion that I think you'll enjoy and will work for you. And he said, well, yeah, let's go with it. And we rigged it up. We talked about it. And he, he shot that really just from one angle with the two main actors in foreground and the whole thing going off behind them. It was as simple as that. That's a one-take wonder, though, right? We could have done it again, but it would have been another three weeks. Right. I mean, this, so I was going to say, this film is, with the yeah. uh, the trawler going down, you did that twice, didn't you? The trawler going, the blowing up or the actual yeah, thing? the blowing up and the plane in shot and, you know. Yeah, the, we did that twice and uh, really just because the plane wasn't quite right in the, in the, in the right position the first time, but we you know, nailed it the second time. How much are you rigging those things thinking that you'll be doing a couple of passes or more? Or how much are you like, well, if we have to do it again, we'll have to rebuild and start over? It depends on the shot. You know, I, we, the reason we do so much testing is because if you've got a complicated special effects shot and you, you have to go a second time or a third time or a fourth time, that's a lot of money. Um, yeah. So you know, my mantra is that we always try and get it in the first shot. You know, there are shots like the, 
the tube train coming through the scene in um, in Skyfall, you know, yes, we could have done it again, but it would have been a month later, you know, because we'd have had to rebuild the set. Um, you know, it would have been a massive amount. And, and when you blow up the baddies layer at the end of the film, you know, you're blowing up a million pound set. Some, you know, you could go again, yes, but it would probably be a two month rebuild. So, you know, you have to be, you know, plan it in such a way and have a lot of contingency in, in place that you avoid a second take on those big shots. Obviously, special effects isn't just about blowing things up. There's a lot of complicated rigging and stuff to do with props. And I, I think I read somewhere that you quite like rigging and, and setting up those systems. Is that something that involves uh, previous for you? Or like how do you to work? Or is that just experimentation as well? Um, you know what Generally, the, all the big rigs, and when I say the big rigs, I'm the, the sinking house in Casino Oil wasn't previous. Um, the tube train crashing through the scene wasn't previous. You know, the 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 truck flipping over in Dark Knight wasn't previous. There, I'm testing all the time, and I'm feeding back my test footage to the director, and he'll say, "Oh, I like that. Change this a little bit. Change that a little bit." So it's almost like a working film previous, rather than guys sitting at computers dreaming up. Previses, you know, Chris Chris Nolan's not a great fan of previses, and no. if you ever quote quote anything from him from a previs, you, you he looks down his nose at you. So that's the worst thing you do. But so I have to say that flipping of the truck is another one of your shots that is just incredibly iconic. I spoke to Paul Franklin, who was standing off to the side with Heath Ledger watching that happen. Um, <laughs> they weren't on camera, though. He said that Keith uh, Heath was in. Um, in costume and in character. So it was a particularly uh, interesting experience for him. But mm. like that that truck, which I believe you actually reduced or, or I guess welded out of existence, the ability for it to pivot between the cab and the back. Mm. But I mean, that was just an astounding piece of, uh, of work. I, I would be remiss if I didn't like get your thoughts on that looking back, because that was incredible. Yeah, yeah I mean, that, that was... Uh, an interesting, uh, you know, I, there are films that I go on and if I've, I was always, you know, thought that was going to be challenging. And I have this theory, <laughs> that, I, I have this theory that I always leave things that I'm no longer going to be challenged with till the last moment, because you, if you're not careful, you, you end up losing hours and hours and hours of sleep, dreaming something up and then they write it out of the script. Right. But it became apparent that this wasn't going to go so I then thought, well, I've got to start taking this a bit seriously. So I tried to manipulate Chris Nolan a little bit, which was I knew was wrong at the time, but I thought I'd try it anyhow into, well, you know, maybe could we just flip the trailer bit over the, the tractor unit? So we had like yep. a built pivot. And he said, no, I, I don't think that would be a spectacular. So I thought, oh, okay. So I then went about the thing as uh, the next, my next part of it was, well, does it have to be really that long? Does it have to be an 18 wheeler? You know, can, we, can we just make it a bit shorter? And he said, no, I've set my heart on that, that, that particular lorry. So I, I, I said to him, right, okay, Chris, I, I'm not 100% convinced I can do this. So I tell him, I'll strike you a deal. I, I will rig a truck, a test truck, and we will go down to the test site and we will get a stunt guy in it and we'll try it. And then, you know, if it gets a third of the way up and, and comes back down again, then I think we've got to consider doing it as a, as a, as a miniature or, you know, that's the first option or second option would be do it visual effects. 
He said, yeah, no, that's fine. So we went down, we, we rigged a truck, went down to the test site, stunt guy strapped himself in, off he went, he pressed the button and the thing sailed over. It never looked like it wasn't going to go over. So I had to go back to Chris then and say, right, Chris, we're, we're on. So I've seen quite pleased with this. The guys, all my crew, they did a brilliant job. So uh, I thought that was it. We were in the clear. And then he, the, the location he chose to do the shot was the banking district of uh, LaSalle Street in Chicago, which was, you know, if was it was the width of the truck. It was the length of the truck wide. So we, we had no room for any deviation. It had to go over straight and yeah. go straight down the road. It had gone over and kinked sideways. It had been straight through some multi-billion bank or something. So that was a very nervous one. And um, I remember being at the front. I was up the end where we were loading it up, putting all the nitrogen in it, strapping the stunt guy in. And uh, it, we got ready for turnover. And, and uh, Chris Nolan said, are you coming down here? I said, no, I'm staying here. So uh, we, 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 we took the safety out, called action, turnover, off it went. And I was watching it going, 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 going down. And I thought, I just, you know, I just can't watch this. <laughs> so uh, I turned around and uh, I, I thought there's going to be, there's going to be two outcomes of this. There's going to be a loud whoosh of the piston going off. And then there's going to be a crash and the sound of a lot of breaking glass. Or there's going to be a loud whoosh, a crash, and a lot of people applauding. And um, thankfully it was the second option. <laughs> So, so in that, or in uh, you know, when you're dropping entire buildings in Venice or whatever, what's the thinking? Because you just touched on it then between miniatures and and full scale, and how effective are miniatures? Like, is, is there any kind of rules of thumb that you just can go to, or is it just simply on a shot by shot basis? If you can't pull it off for real, um, you get the miniature as big as you can. I think there are economic reasons, safety reasons why sometimes you can't do it for real. Um, so, you know, a miniature, and, you know, they're not miniatures. You know, we have a joke that we call them bigotures now, not miniatures. Yeah. You know, you can, it could be third scale, even half scale, but it still makes a big difference. You know, the bigger scale you can go, the, the more realistic you're going to get it. You know, the sinking house in Casino Royale, the exterior of that was third scale. So it was... Uh, what was it, 28 foot high or something. And particularly hard because it had water in it, which, of course, just doesn't scale very well. No, exactly that. But, you know, I think we pulled it off. The fact that it was such a big scale, we, we yeah. got um, – I, I did a lot of tests with, you know, taking video of, of, of the bubbles all rupt in the, the gases coming up underneath, and I, I literally on, you know, on Final Cut Pro – change the frame rate incrementally till till we got the what I thought was the best combination we were going to get. And it was really more about the bubbles, you know, the water, the look of the water. You said that you're not really uh, been doing much previous, which I, I am in awe of, but what about stunt viz? Like the stunt teams these days do such incredible jobs in uh, videoing and working up stunts. Surely they must be uh, obviously a team that you're working with, but a team that you're like looking at those stunt visas and stuff. Does that play more these days? Stunt visas, uh, yes, has become a lot more prominent these days. And I think it's, 
it's a good tool for giving the director a good idea of what to expect. And, and generally, they're more for fight sequences, you know, camera angles, uh, et cetera, et cetera, how you move the camera around. Um, I don't know, as a second-year director, I, 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 I'm a great – one thing I learned off of Chris Nolan is don't be pinned into a, a look. When you turn up on the set, you've got all the actors there and you've got all the equipment there. Be open to um, changing things for the better. You know, it, it's I, I worry about previews that you, you get so locked in, and I've heard so many second unit guys where they, they're literally just bringing the, the previews up on the monitor next to what they're shooting right. to match it. I, I think it's a little bit sad. You know, they, you need to be open to react to this uh, violence around you and change things and, you know, move things around so it's a better shot so yes they, they serve a purpose as a guide but no more than that and of course the big uh team that you're interfacing with is camera department and i wanted to see if we could discuss that so there's on these uh large um special effects sequences you're doing there's you know oftentimes many cameras that are filming them uh, mm -hmm. i mean what's that relationship like in terms of placing cameras because you must have a good sense it and, and over your career, I've had a great sense of where cameras would look good to film the stuff that your team's putting together. But by the same token, that's clearly a central role of the cinematographer. Do you want to discuss that uh, those camera choices? Yeah, I think, that, I think the best example I can give of that is the, is the, um, uh, the, the tube train crashing through the scene in Skyfall. You know, we had Roger Deakins on, you know, an I, iconic photo, uh, cinematographer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and... Um, he, he we walked around together and he he literally he said well would you think this will work here and uh, I said yeah I think it'd be great and there was one camera that, you know I said look Roger I think one head on just where the with just where the the tube train hits the ground one just past that would be fantastic and he said would well, you is he not going to get hit and I, I said no I'm pretty sure it'd be absolutely you know spot on you, you'll miss it and you'll get a great shot. And uh, so we went round, we placed about 12 cameras. And I, I laughed with this about Roger after because I did a podcast with Roger. And um, he came up to me at the end and, and with all the cameras and all the lighting, you know, because they went away and left me to do the actual crash. Yeah. He said, what do you think? Do you think it looks all right? You know, I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, do you think it's lit right? And do you think it's going to do it justice? I said, do me a favour, Roger. Yeah. <laughs> Who, 10 times Oscar nominated or 12 times Oscar nominated cinematographer asking me, a special effects guy, if it looks all right. So uh, we had a laugh about it and I went out and told all the guys. And um, But he, he's such a gentleman and, and such a talented guy. But that was an instance where we literally walked around together, you know, positioning and we were talking about where we could use it in the shot. You know, etc. You know, they they use so many angles on that tube train coming through. That the, the um, interesting fact is that um, I'm actually for about ten frames of that shot. They green screen me in as the driver of the train. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, well, I was I was I, I, Sam sent me to do a um, a green screen shot of a train driver. They could put in, and we had this guy, bless him. And I was shoot, shooting takes of him and sending them back to Sam. And Sam said, Chris, this isn't working. You've got to do it. 
So I thought, well, this is a, you know, this is an outtake shot. They're just going to get me doing it, looking like an idiot, and then use it in the outtakes. But they, yeah, they didn't. They actually, it's very, very short, and if you blink, you miss it. But I am actually that train driver. Right. I, I'm now going to have to hunt through the credits of the film to see if you're uh, listed as a uh, cast. Oh, I never got credit for it. I never got credit for yeah. it. Yeah. Sag card coming in the mail. Um, uh, yeah. I, I guess what you're 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 referring to there, and obviously, Roger, somebody that's like a incredibly um at the top of his game or whatever but but this is all um just the sort of collaboration and confidence of um people that aren't trying to prove anything but just open to to that collaboration that's sounding so uh yeah i mean the whole whole filmmaking process is a collaboration it's teamwork and you know the more you people can learn to work with each other the better the end result is, you know, I can have my opinions and the, the you know, the, the lighting camera can have his opinions, but if you can get together and talk about it and come up with what we all think is the best option to go for, it's, it's got to be a better result. So, so you've enjoyed like so many films and, and obviously have a great relationship um, with the principles that are, but what about your team? Is your team the same team? Pretty much, you know, do you have a crew that you are always using? Are you, what, how does that work? Um, I, I've, I've had a team. I mean, obviously, Goldeneye was my first big break doing, doing which was 20-something years ago now. And there are guys that were on Goldeneye with me that started off as trainees who are now very, very senior people. You know, over the years, some people move on. They go on to do their own films. You know, but I'd like to think that, you know, we we – Throughout the years, we've had a great team that have all helped each other and, and pulled off some amazing work. You know, they I have a, I had a team around me, you know, for many, many years who, who were so committed to, to do doing the job. I mean, the the we had the, the sinking house in Casino Royale, which was a, a mammoth task. I mean, it weighed 120 tons, it could pivot 15 degrees on either axis, and it sunk 20 foot into a tank of water. You know, so the, the engineering feat of that was was incredible. And, you know, there was times when I'd come in in the morning ready to shoot it, and unbeknown to me, some of my crew had been working halfway through the night to change a seal in the hydronic ram to do some sort of maintenance on something. You know, they're, they're such a dedicated bunch of people. You know, they're the, the real heroes. They they make me look great but you know they're they're the people that and you know that's the one thing about when i won the oscar it gave me the best thing about it was it gave me the opportunity to thank them all in public you know on the the stage well done guys yeah how big was your crew on this film on um on no time to die uh the, the the english crew crew was probably 70, 80 people. We had um, Italian crew. There was probably 10 of those. We had a Norwegian crew. There was probably 12 of those. Um, probably in all, there was probably about 120, 130. Right. And so presumably you've got a core team no matter where you go in the world and then you're just like picking up what presumably other people to help. How do people get into this nowadays? Because like you described at the beginning when we were talking of this, uh, obviously you've got some family connections, but you were very young and you trained up. But like for somebody starting today who's interested in special effects, how are they tending to get into it? Oh, I'm, I'm a great believer in um, having a good engineering knowledge. Now you can 
come in with that engineering knowledge, you know, having been to university or college, um, or you can come in and learn that engineering knowledge. But for me, it's crucial. You know, it's such a big part of what we do in special effects. It's crucial for, for youngsters coming in or anybody coming in to have that knowledge and know what they can, what can be achieved. So that's very important to me. You know, I've had, you know, university graduates coming to me, and but I've also had guys that have done a um, college course and learned how to weld and use a lathe and a mill come in as well. Uh, and you know, it's 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 a case of if you if you come in and you're you're quite humble, and the guys, all my team, will bend over backwards to teach you. They will spend hours showing how to weld, how to use this, how to do that, teaching about hydraulics. You know, if you're keen um, and willing to learn, they're, they're the, they spend hours teaching people. So, no, I've had many, many youngsters that have come, started off with me, and now they're doing their own films. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, those roles that are maybe, uh, I mean, obviously, the big roles are terrific, but uh, I've always admired, for example, standby props, as the, mm. sort of the so, incredibly ingenious and wonderful. Because you mentioned the uh, the prop that you did with the ski pole, but standby props on set, I think, are unsung heroes. It's ne they never sort of get enough credit, and all, there are all of those uh, roles on the shoot, and have great people involved doing really good work. Yeah, well, the, you know, prop guys, they're they're intimately dealing with the the, the actors. You know, that's that's. Uh, a, um, a thing in its own right, you know. You you have to be subtle. You have to be sometimes forceful. You know, it, it's it, that the, the, the politics of that role are, are quite immense. And I think they they uh, they they play a very valued role in the whole filmmaking process. But you know, when you look across the whole board, you know, construction crews, you know, yep. they don't get any any nowhere near the, the, the kudos that you should be getting and electrician crews, you know, there they there's no awards for being the best construction manager or the best gather spark. You know, it's they 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 should be getting some recognition really. Yeah, the structural engineering, as you say, that goes into these things so that they they work right and they work safely is extraordinary. Mm. Um, and of course, what we always as an audience want you guys to do is the thing we've never seen before, right? So it's not as if you can just go to the bag of tricks and repeat the same thing twice. Well, I think that's the, um, you know, that's the secret. That's what I always try and do is come up with something different. You know, the it's well documented, but, you know, in GoldenEye, I got called into the office with Martin Campbell and Barbara Broccoli and Michael Wilson, and they said, look, Chris, we're not happy with the, the motorbike chase. How, how can we improve it? I said, well, get rid of it. And they sort of looked at me and, and they said, well, what, what, can, what else can he take? And I said, well, look, he's starting the whole chase in a military park. Why doesn't he take a tank? And that whole sequence came out of that one conversation. And believe me, that once we got into it and started coming up with the ideas, if we'd used every idea that we came up with, we'd still be shooting it now. It was <laughs> like it could go under water, it could go through buildings. And we, we used the logic that, okay, it's not as fast as a car, but it can take shortcuts. It can go through the corner of a building. It can go, you know, it's it kind of all made all made sense. And I, I thought, you know, it was a really original um, sequence that, you know, I've ne I'd never seen before. 
Well, I'm sure you've heard this before, but you guys really are the cue to the uh, to the actors in the way that uh, cue is to Bond in the producing the stuff that lets us as the audience kind of, as I say, as a kid, I sort of virtually stood up in the cinema and cheered um, because because uh, we want to see Bond do his thing. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to us, Chris. We really appreciate it and brilliant work. No, thank you so much. I, I'm I'm very very proud of it. I must say, I I, I love the film and I shall probably see it another two or three times, which is not, I don't often do that with Bond films. I see them at the premiere and that's it, move on. But I thought, I think, you know, I think there's two aspects. I think I, I'd like to applaud Barbara Broccoli and Michael Wilson for holding out and making sure it got a theatrical release. I think that was very brave uh, and was absolutely the right thing to do. So, you know, apl applauds for them. And But I think also uh, Daniel was at the top of his game I, I'd never seen him. You know, I've done six films with Daniel and he was on fire. You know, he, I could see it. You know, he wanted to make this really count as his last film and I, I think he pulled it off. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a, it's a great end. And obviously we didn't necessarily know it was going to be this last film after the last one that he did. Um, mm -hmm. But now you can't imagine not finishing out the story the way that uh, it did and having him sign off the way that he did. So, well, yeah. you know, I knew what was going to happen. I was still shocked. <laughs> well, again, thanks, Chris. We really appreciate it. No, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks, Chris, for taking time to talk with Mike. Really enjoyed the conversation, hearing about the film and other things that you've worked on over the years. Uh, full disclosure, I actually haven't seen the film where I've been living since the outbreak of COVID in a small fishing village in Mexico. The nearest movie theater is about 90 minutes away and the balls of bus and boat ride. And they had the only version they had was the Spanish dubbed version. And I much prefer seeing any original English language with, with uh, Spanish subtitles. Uh, by the way, a great way to learn a foreign language, uh, watching with subtitles. Uh, but hopefully soon I will see Sin Tiempo, Pado Maria, as they call it down here. Because it's available on 4K, HDR, streaming online. So that's what I'll have to settle for. Well, that's it for this episode the FX Podcast. Until next time, I'm John Montgomery. Thanks for listening. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.